Chapter 10 of The Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter 10. Of a certain voracious cat, some goblin cats, magical cats, and cats of Kilkenny. Of all the great big stories that have been told of cats, that which describes the origin of cat's head apples is surely the greatest, biggest one. The legend runs thus. The widow Tompkins had a back room on the second floor. Her name was on a neat brass plate on one side of the door. Companion she had only one, a beautiful tomcat, who was a famous mouser, the dickens for a rat. His color was a tabby, and his skin as soft as silk, and she would lap him every day while he lapped the milk. One day she was disturbed from sleep with double rat-tat-tat, and she went in such a hurry that she quite forgot her cat. Poor Thomas, soon as daylight came, walked up and down the floor, and heard the dog's meat woman cry, Cat's meat at the door. With hunger he got fairly wild, though formerly so tame. Another day passed slowly, another just the same. With hunger he so hungry was, it did so strong assail, that although very loath, he was obliged to eat his tail. This whetted quite his appetite, and though his stump was sore, the next day he was tempted, sad, to eat a little more. To make his life the longer, then, he made his body shorter, and one after the other attacked each hinder quarter. He walked about on two forelegs, alas, without beholders, till more and more, by hunger pressed, he dined on both his shoulders. Next day he found the cannibal to eating more a check, although he tried and did reach all he could reach of his neck. But as he could not bite his ear, all mournfully he cried. Towards the door he turned his eyes, cocked up his nose, and died. The widow did at last return, and oh, how she did stare! She guessed the tale as soon as she saw Tom's head lying there. Quite grief sincerely heartfelt, as she owned his fate a harden. She buried it beneath an apple-tree just down her garden so mark what strange effects from little causes will appear the fruit of this said tree was changed and strangely too next year the neighbors say tis truth for their folks who go to chapels this cat's head was the sole first cause of all the cat's head apples the cat and the conjurer gottfried heller in die leute von seldweile tells a droll story this is an abridgment of a popular author's version of it, published some years ago. One day, once upon a time, or thereabouts, the witch-finder of a certain Swiss town, himself secretly a wizard, was taking his afternoon's walk, when he came across a tomcat, looking very thin and miserable. This cat had once been the chief favorite of a rich old lady, who had trained him up in luxurious living. Now she was dead, and Tom's happy days were over. He was as shaggy and meager as he had formerly been sleek and plump. 
now you must know that cat's grease was in those days an invaluable ingredient for certain magical preparations provided the cat to whom it belonged willingly made a donation of it this proviso rendered good efficient cat's grease an exceedingly rare commodity for though there might be no great difficulty in finding a fat cat to find one willing to part with its fat was of course difficult enough here however was an animal in desperate circumstances who might be accessible to reason therefore says the magician how much will you take for your fat why i haven't got any replied tom who to tell the truth was as thin as a hurdle you may have though if you say the word said the magician and i'll tell you how you see he knew from experience that tom was a cat who was capable of making flesh for he had known him as round as a dumpling so he made this bargain he offered tom a whole month's luxurious living on condition that at the expiration of that time he should voluntarily lay down his life and yield up all the fat he had acquired during the four weeks of course tom agreed and the contract was signed on the spot the apartment provided for tom's lodging was fitted up as an artificial landscape a little wood was perched on top of a little mountain which rose from the banks of a little lake on the branches of the trees were perched dainty birds all roasted and emitting a most savoury odour from the cavities of the mountains peered forth sundry baked mice all seasoned with delicious stuffing and exquisitely larded with bacon the lake consisted of the newest milk with a small fish or two at the bottom thus to the enjoyment of the epicure was added the excitement of imaginary sportsmanship tom ate his fill and more and soon became as fat as the magician could wish but before long he became thoughtful the month had nearly expired at the end he was to die if fat enough ah a bright thought he would get thin again with a wondrous strength of mind he refrained from eating the luxuries provided took plenty of exercise on the housetops and kept himself in excellent health but much thinner than suited the wizard's fancy before long this gentleman remonstrated with tom pointing out to him very plainly that he was bound by all the laws of honour to get fat by the month's end to this tom had little to urge of any moment and the magician informed him that he would kill him at the appointed period let him be in what condition he might tom therefore would gain nothing by being thin and it was hoped that his good taste unchecked by other considerations would induce him to make up for lost time time rolled on tom behaved worse than ever and when the fatal day arrived he looked in worse condition than ever a dissipated abandoned shaggy scamp without an ounce on his bones the wizard could not stand this so he thrust tom into an empty coop and fed him by violence in course of time the wizard was satisfied and began to sharpen his knife but no sooner did tom perceive this act than he began to utter such singular expressions of contrition that his proprietor paused to ask him to explain them the cat in wild terms alluded to a certain sum of ten thousand florins lying at the bottom of a well and the wizard wanted to know more about them it appeared then that tom's late mistress had thrown the sum he named to the bottom of a well and informed her cat that should he find a perfectly beautiful and penniless maiden whom a perfectly honest man was inclined to wed in spite of her poverty then he should empty the contents of the well as a marriage portion of course this tale was false the money existed where tom had described but it had been ill-gotten gold with a curse upon it but the wizard nibbled at the bait 
put a chain round Tom's neck, and went to have a look at the treasure. There it was, sure enough, shining under the water. "'Are you quite sure that there are exactly ten thousand florins?' asked the magician. "'I've never been down to sea,' replied Tom. "'I was obliged to take the old lady's word for it.' "'But where shall I find a wife?' asked the wizard. "'I'll find you one,' said Tom. "'Will you?' "'To be sure. Tear up that contract, though, to begin with.' The wizard, not without grumbling, drew from his pocket the fatal paper which Tom no sooner perceived than he had pounced on it and swallowed it whole making at the same time the reflection that he had never before tasted so delicious a morsel in his life. In the neighborhood dwelt an old woman who was a witch, one of the ugliest old women you ever saw, who every night flew up the chimney on a broomstick and played Meg's diversions by the light of the moon. This lady had an owl, who was a bird of loose principles, and had been an associate of Tom's in his gay days. This bright couple consulted together how they should persuade the ancient maiden to marry the old man. She never will, said the owl. Then we must make her, but how? We must catch her first and take her prisoner, and that is to be done easily enough with a net, spun by a man of sixty years old who has never set eyes on the face of a woman. Where are we to find him? Just round the corner. He has been blind from his birth. When the net had been procured, they set it in the chimney, and presently caught the old lady, and after much trouble they starved her into compliance. Then, by magical art, she put on an appearance of youth and beauty, and the wizard married her in an ecstasy of delight. But was he not in a fury when, evening approaching, she resumed her pristine ugliness? And was he not disgusted at his bride, in spite of the treasure she had brought him? As for Tom, like many bad people— he lived happily ever afterward. Here is an abridgment of the famous tale of Puss in Boots. A miller died, leaving his youngest son nothing but a cat. The poor young fellow complained bitterly of his fate, but the cat bade him be of good cheer and procure a pair of boots and a bag. The youth contrived to do so. The first attempt Puss made was to go into a warren in which there was a great number of rabbits. He put some bran and parsley into his bag, and then, stretching himself out at full length as if he were dead, he waited for some young rabbits, who as yet knew nothing of the cunning tricks of the world, to come and get into the bag. Scarcely had he laid down before he succeeded as well as could be wished. A giddy young rabbit crept into the bag, and the cat immediately drew the strings and killed it without mercy. Puss, proud of his prey, hastened directly to the palace, where he asked to speak to the king. On being shown into the apartment of his majesty, he made a low bow, and said, I have brought you, sire, this rabbit, from the warren of my lord the Marquis of Carabas, who commanded me to present it to your majesty with the assurance of his respects. One day the cat, having heard that the king intended to take a ride that morning by the river's side with his daughter, who was the most beautiful princess in the world, he said to his master, Take off your clothes and bathe yourself in the river, just in the place I shall show you, and leave the rest to me. The Marquis did exactly as he was desired, without being able to guess at what the cat intended. While he was bathing, the king passed by, and Puss directly called out as loudly as he could bawl, "'Help! Help! My lord Marquis of Carabas is in danger of being drowned!' The king, hearing the cries and recognizing the cat, ordered his attendants to go directly to the assistance of my lord Marquis of Carabas, and the cunning cat 
having hid his master's clothes under a large stone the king commanded the officers of his wardrobe to fetch him the handsomest suit it contained the king's daughter was mightily taken with his appearance and the marquis of carabas had no sooner cast upon her two or three respectful glances than she became violently in love with him the cat enchanted to see how well his scheme was likely to succeed ran before to a meadow that was reaping and said to the reapers good people if you do not tell the king who will soon pass this way that the meadow you are reaping belongs to my lord marquis of carabas you shall be chopped as small as mincemeat the king did not fail to ask the reapers to whom the meadow belonged to my lord marquis of carabas said they all at once for the threats of the cat had terribly frightened them puss at length arrived at a stately castle that belonged to an ogre whom he first persuaded to assume the form of a mouse and then cleverly gobbled him up before he could get back to his proper shape again the king's party soon after arrived the cat said the castle was his master's and the king was so much charmed with the amiable qualities and noble fortune of the marquis of carabas and the young princess too had fallen so violently in love with him that when the king had partaken of a collation he said to the marquis it will be your own fault my lord marquis of carabas if you do not soon become my son-in-law the marquis received the intelligence with a thousand respectful acknowledgments accepted the honour conferred upon him and married the princess that very day the cat became a great lord and never after pursued rats except for his own amusement i think too that the famous story of the white cat should also find a place in this little volume there once was a king the legend says who was growing old and it was told to him that his three sons wished to govern the kingdom the old king who did not wish to give up his power just yet thought the best way to prevent his sons from taking his throne was to send them out to seek for adventures so he called them all around him and said my sons go away and travel for a year and he of you who brings me the most beautiful little dog shall have the kingdom and be king after me then the three princes started on the journey but it is of the youngest of the three that i now have to tell he travelled for many days and at last found himself one evening at the door of a splendid castle but not a man or woman was to be seen a number of hands with no bodies to them appeared two hands took off the prince's cloak two others seated him in a chair another pair brought a brush to brush his hair and several pairs waited on him at supper then some more hands came and put him to bed in a fine chamber where he slept all night but still no one appeared the next morning the hands brought him into a splendid hall where there sat on a throne a large white cat who made him sit beside her and expressed herself glad to see him next day the prince and the white cat went out hunting together the cat was mounted on a fine-spirited monkey and seemed very fond of the prince who on his part was delighted with her wit and cleverness instead of dogs cats hunted for them these creatures ran with great agility after rats and mice and birds catching and killing a great number of them and sometimes the white cat's monkey would climb a tree with the white cat on his back after a bird a mouse or a squirrel this pleasant life went on for a long time every day the white cat became more fond of the prince while on his part the prince could not help loving the poor cat who was so kind and attentive to him at last the time drew near when the prince was to return home and he had not thought of looking for a little dog but the cat gave him a casket 
and told him to open this before the king, and all would be well. So the prince journeyed home, taking with him an ugly mongrel cur. When the brothers saw this, they laughed secretly to each other, and thought themselves quite secure, so far as their younger brother was concerned. They had with infinite pains procured each of them a very rare and beautiful little dog, and each thought himself quite sure to get the prize. When the day came on which the dogs were to be shown, each of the two elder princes produced a beautiful little dog on a silk velvet cushion. No one could judge which was the prettier. The youngest now opened his casket and found a walnut. He cracked this walnut, and out of the walnut sprang a little tiny dog of exquisite beauty. Still the old king would not give up his kingdom. He told the young princes they must bring him home a piece of cambric, so fine it could be threaded through the eye of a needle. And so they went away in search of such a piece of cambric. Again the youngest prince passed a year with the white cat, and again the cat gave him a walnut when the time came for him to return home. The three princes were summoned before their father, who produced a needle. The first and second princes brought a piece of cambric which could almost, but not quite, go through the needle's eye. The youngest prince broke open his walnut shell. He found inside it a small nutshell, and then a cherry stone, and then a grain of wheat, and then a grain of millet, and in this grain of millet a piece of cambric four hundred yards long, which passed easily through the eye of the needle. But the old king said, He who brings the most beautiful lady shall have the kingdom. The prince went back to the white cat and told her what his father had said. She replied, Cut off my head and my tail. At last he consented. Instantly the cat was transformed into a beautiful princess, for she had been condemned by a wicked fairy to appear as a cat, till a young prince should cut off her head and tail. The prince and princess went to the old king's court, and she was far more beautiful than the ladies brought by the other two princes. But she did not want the kingdom, for she had four of her own already. One of these she gave to each of the elder brothers of the young prince, and over the other two she ruled with her husband, for the young prince married her, and they lived happily together all their lives. In Mr. Morey's fairy tales there's a funny passage. I wonder, said a sparrow, what the eagles are about, that they don't fly away with the cats. And now I think of it, a civil question cannot give offence. So the sparrow finished her breakfast, went to the eagle, and said, May it please your royalty, I see you and your race fly away with the birds and the lambs that do no harm, but there is not a creature so malignant as a cat. She prowls about our nests, eats up our young, and bites off our heads. She feeds so daintily that she must herself be good eating. She is lighter to carry than a bird, and you would get a famous grip on her loose fur. Why do you not feed upon cat? Ah, said the eagle, there is sense in your question. I had the worms to hear this morning, asking me why I did not breakfast upon sparrows. Do I see a morsel of worm-skin on your beak, my child? The sparrow cleaned his bill upon his bosom, and said, I should like to see the worm who came with that inquiry. Come forward, worm, the eagle said. But when the worm appeared, the sparrow snapped him up and ate him. Then he went on with his argument against the cats. Everybody has heard of the Kilkenny cats, and how they fought in a saw-pit with such ferocious determination that when the battle was over nothing was remaining of either combatant except his tail. 
Of course, we none of us suppose the tale is true, but some writers think that the account of the mutual destruction of the contending cats was an allegory designed to typify the utter ruin to which centuries of litigation and embroilment on the subject of conflicting rights and privileges tended to reduce the respective exchequers of the rival municipality bodies of Kilkenny and Irishtown, separate corporations existing within the liberties of one city, and the boundaries of the respective jurisdiction of which had never been marked out or defined by an authority to which either was willing to bow. The desperate struggles for supremacy of these parish worthies began A.D. 1377, and they fought, as only vestrymen can fight, a little over three hundred years, by the end of which time there was, as you may suppose, very little left of them but their tails. For, of course, there was a disinterested third person to whom the affairs were referred for arbitration, in the old way that the cats appealed to the monkey upon the great cheese question, who swallowed his huge mouthful. In the end it would appear that all the property of either side was mortgaged, and by-laws were passed by each party that their respective officers should be content with the dignity of their station, and forego all hope of salary, till the suit at law with the other pretended corporation should be terminated. Let this be as it may, one thing is certain— Kilkenny cats are quite as amiable nowadays as the cats of any other city in Great Britain. But there is another story of a great cat fight in the same neighborhood. One night in the summertime, all the cats in the city and county of Kilkenny were absent from their homes, and next morning a plain near the city was strewn with thousands of slain cats, and it was reported that almost all the cats in Ireland had joined in the fight as was shown by the collars of some of the dead bearing the names of places in all quarters of the island the cause of the quarrel is not stated but there are yet men alive who know persons since dead who actually inspected the field at least so they say time out of mind the cat has figured largely in our nursery annals from the days of hey diddle diddle and the house that jack built to the present moment there is some waggishness, by the way, in Mr. Blanchard's version of the second-mentioned rhyme, printed as sort of an argument in the book of the Drury Lane pantomime. Anon with velvet foot and Tarquin strides, subtle Grimalkin to his quarry glides. Grimalkin grim that slew the fierce rodent, whose tooth insidious Johann's sackcloth rent. Lo, how the deep-mouthed canine foes assault, that vest the avenger of the stolen malt stored in the hallowed precincts of that hall that rose complete at jack's creative call here stalks the impetuous cow with crumpled horn thereon the exacerbating hound was torn who bade the feline slaughter-beast that slew the rat predacious whose keen fangs ran through the textile fibres that involved the grain that lay in hands in violet domain the cat is one of the principal of the dramatis personae in Mr. Darcy Thompson's droll nursery nonsense, and some of the most ingenious pictures Charles Bennett ever drew are to be found in his Nine Lives of a Cat. There is some good fun for little folks in a small book called Tales from Catland, with some masterly pictures from the graceful pencil of Mr. Harrison Weir, and there is another work called Cat and Dog, which I would recommend to all young readers. 
of some other children's books in which pussy takes a prominent part it behooves not the writer of this volume to say very much for obvious reasons i may however remark that though a great admirer of the feline race the artist who illustrated the works in question and this has very limited notion concerning the way in which a cat should be drawn and has found after all his trouble that under his hand pussy transferred to wood is very wooden indeed it is some consolation to that artist however to reflect that hogarth's cats are anything but good ones by the way i always wonder when i look at that picture of the actress's dressing-room in the barn whether poor strollers were ever driven to such an expedient as that of cutting a cat's tail for the blood and if so how was it used in george cruikshank's bottle do you remember in the first scene how happily the cat and kittens are playing on the hearth and how in the next the kitten has disappeared and the cat a poor half-starved wretch is sniffing wistfully at an empty plate upon the table the change in pussy's fortune is a clever touch but of all cat pictures one of the same artist's illustrations to the brother may hughes greatest plague of life is that to be remembered i mean the one called the cat did it in the chapter about mrs burgess's tom there are a score and more of wonderful cat stories in the munchener bilderbogen and in other german books and who of those have seen them can forget granville's extraordinary animals so like cats and yet so human there were some pictures that charles bennett drew showing the gradual change of a human face into that of a beast in which it was astonishing to note how easily and with what a few lines the transformation could be effected i might make this book a great deal longer and more wearisome perhaps if i gave even the briefest outline of all the stories i have come upon during my long search but i believe that those to be found in these pages are among the best extant End of chapter 10